Welcome to Grails, a podcast by Alton Insights. My name is John Tunger, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Taylor Holiday. He's a major alternative asset investor. He was actually an early investor into the new platform Dibs. We talk about everything from collecting physical cardboard to how Dibs is innovating in the space. We talk about a lot of the nuances of that specific platform, and I learned a ton about how Taylor thinks about NFTs and how they're evolving. If you've enjoyed these first couple episodes of Grails, it would mean a ton to me and the Alton Insights team if you could leave a review, share it with a friend who should dive deeper into this amazing world of alternative assets. That would really help us spread the word. But without further ado, Taylor Holiday, let's get started. By day, Taylor Holiday is the managing partner of an e-commerce growth agency called Common Thread Collective and part owner of 4x400, a company where they own and operate their own direct-to-consumer companies. He spends most of his days figuring out what's next on the internet so that he can give his clients an edge that'll help him with their own businesses, but it also comes in handy with his other obsessions, which by night, he invests in alternative assets, probably thinks way too much about NFTs, and hosts a weekly poker game that, get this, turned into a mini investor Shark Tank group that ended up investing $250,000 into Dibs, the new fractional card investing platform. Yeah, we'll, we'll touch on that in just a little bit. But when did this obsession first start for Taylor? Well, like for a lot of us, it all started when we were looking for something to do while stuck inside. I was a COVID, you know, uh, collector. Um, in the absence of my obsession with DFS and fantasy and sports betting, there was a void, right, when everything disappeared. And I started playing this Wednesday night poker game, which you've played with us one time with a group of guys. And one of the guys owns a card shop alongside his day-to-day business he owns and so he would do we started like breaking cards on the zoo so he would bring a box we'd all buy we'd do a break and so that that gave me an introduction into that world and then i was like holy crap what is all this like i had no idea this whole subculture existed and then because like i don't i'm incapable of doing anything sort of that's just like so far from my nature i just became obsessive and now you can see behind me the label printer and the stacks of slabs and the you know, I, I just went down the rabbit hole hard into sports cards. And I was into sports cards as a kid, but this was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And that was like this foray. And then that's when I discovered that it was the worst, like the worst transactional industry I'd ever been a part of. Like, <laughs> I have never been a part of anything that makes it harder to understand, harder to purchase, harder to sell, harder to store. Like the entire thing was a disaster. And it was all old technology, no improvements. And like, as I got it, every time I peeled back a layer, I was like, oh, okay. So I buy it off of eBay, they take a big fee, and then they ship it to me. And then sometimes the people pull back their money and cancel and they're shill bidding. And what's that? Walk me through the first time. So what did you buy from eBay? What you what was like, you're like, wait, why is this so hard? Is it really this hard? So what I'm super into is like deep minor league baseball. Like I have a deep understanding of of that asset class of player, like the the future prospects really. And so one of the guys got me understanding that in baseball, the primary assets are Bowman Chrome and really the Bowman Chrome firsts. 
what I went after was like, okay, if I'm looking for Bowman Chrome first of minor league players and baseball players assets, they really peak at debut. Like it's a weird thing versus any other sport where the asset actually, the peak value of it is when a player first reaches the big leagues. And then like, they basically fall off until they become hall of famers. Like it's a really weird dynamic relative to any other sport. Right. So I got really into buying prospects. So even behind me, most of these slabs, like this is CJ Abrams. He's a prospect for the San Diego Padres. I know this is bad podcasting. I'm showing no, on video. So there's like six slabs, six slabs yeah. he's holding up. What probably all PSA tens are close to it. Yeah, exactly. And and so that's what I got really into. Was I go on and I started buying Royce Lewis, who's a guy that is a local kid that was committed to the same college I was. That was the Twins' top prospect. He was one of the top prospects at the time. And you know, like a, a few guys that I was really targeting in that world. And so I would, I was like trying to understand because then the next thing you got to understand is all the parallels, right? Like, okay, what is blue and gold and gold wave and shimmer and how do they relate to each other? And this is where I was just like, are you kidding me? Like, this is the level of understanding you need. Luckily though, I was on the zoom call with experts. And so they started teaching me like, okay, you want the true colors and you don't want the waves or the shimmers. And this is colors more valuable than that one. And here's how you can track. You want to look at all the players and you want to compare their base chrome to their chrome auto to their gold auto and where the gaps are and find the delta, like all this stuff. And yeah. it was like, oh, this is like a whole thing. What a learning. So curve. that was like, yeah. So, so I went on eBay and I made so many mistakes. Like one, just not understanding the whole dynamic of how you even check what the sale prices are. So learning what 130point.com was and how you could see like what the buy it now sale price was versus the offer price and the auctions and how some of the auctions, maybe you had to go look at who, how many bids there actually were to make sure it's not somebody pumping up their own asset and what's like how you actually, so there was this whole like thing of trying to understand what the actual value was and then where the delta was that you could potentially arbitrage on it. Then the grading, like what is the difference between a BGS 9.5 with different subgrades and what's a true gem, meaning they have all 9.5s or better versus one that's a BGS 9.5, but it has one of the subs is a nine. And it's like, dude, the level of specificity in this world is insanity. Like how is this so ridiculously <laughs> complex, right? And so it, it has this mechanism by which it, it, it created at gates of access on the basis of information, right? Which is one of the primary signs of a market that is ripe for disruption is when it's gated by access with knowledge and knowledge that is frankly like insider uselessness in a way that could be simplified to make it more accessible for more people. So that, that was sort of this first light bulb to me that like, and yet despite all of this, the demand is going through the roof. So anytime you see a marketplace where there's massive friction, the understanding is complex, the assets are hard to access, and it's still growing like crazy, that's a light bulb Powder of like, keg. wait a second. Yes. And so that's, that's what we witnessed was like, oh, just, and, and like setting aside that like the process of like this process was the one that was like so insane to me. It's like there were people that were buying raw cards, meaning ungraded. Okay. So you would buy a card off of eBay. It's a seven day auction. You receive a card, they ship it to you. So 10 days later, you receive a set of raw cards. You then fill out, you send. You want to send them to be graded. Okay, so grading is the process by which they validate the, the, the condition of the card. And the biggest PSA, who it sounds like you know Nat Turner, and, and like the, who's now the new owner of PSA Collectibles, but they are so backlogged that you're talking about nine to 12 months on a base submission. And then even the process of submitting is you have to buy these specific sleeves you have to fill out these forms. So even knowing what a penny sleeve was versus a top loader and the shortage of top loaders in the market, like literally every step of this process was broken and like inherently broken. 
And yet people were doing it, buying it, penny sleeving, top loading, shipping to PSA, waiting nine months, taking photographs on their phone, uploading to eBay one by one, selling them in an auction. And you were just like to make $12 on a $40 <laughs> purchase, you know? And you're just like, how is this happening? The grind you know? is real. Um, yeah. And I, and I got sucked into it too. I was like, oh, this is great. I'll, you know, I'll go. I have, I, at one point I was going into, we have a studio at our office and I was buying cards. And one of the things I noticed was the merchandising sucks. Like everybody's merchandising sucks. And so I was like, oh, I'll take way better photos than everybody else. And I'll create this thing. And I would spend three hours on a Saturday photographing my slabs to make them look way better. And then I was like, what am I doing? Like, as I started actually calculating my time investment relative to the return, I was like, Taylor, you've lost your mind. You've completely and your money. miscalculated yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was just like, this is, this is a horrible, horrible return on this time, but it was fun. It was energizing. So that's when we started like, okay, the new play is people have to be fixing this. Like there have to be businesses that are trying to solve for this. So we started doing this thing on Wednesday nights with our poker group where we would have companies come pitch us who were trying to make the card industry better. They were trying to use software and technology to improve the process. And so we, I would just put out on Twitter, like I started just sort of networking through Twitter to try and meet as many people as I could. And we got a bunch of people to come pitch us. Everybody from, you know, the collectible guys to the crew over at Loop to Alt, like we had everybody come and pitch us on how they were going to improve the industry. Because suddenly there was a bunch of businesses trying to improve this because we weren't the only ones who knew it was broken. It was broken for everybody, right? So that was like the first foray into where this was all headed, um, was learning about these businesses and what they were doing. And there was people that were, you know, like the Starstock crew and like creating, there was a lot of movement around inventory and management. Like, how are you going to track your values and, you know, getting into know the Investacard crew and like all of that side of things. And then there was, you know, the people that were doing the, a lot of the breakers and creating better platforms for managing breaking and that side of things and delivery and trading within that environment. We were all like, man, you know, like, or even, even just like the, the vault stores, like the PWCCs of the world. And it all felt like better horseshoes for a horse. And we were looking for who was inventing the car. That's how it was like people trying to make the current system better wasn't our view of it. We, we felt like there was something that was going to really be transformative. And then our view was always about digital assets. It was this idea that like, I don't care about the physical card. And this is why I talk about me being new to the hobby is that when you talk to people who are from the hobby, meaning like they're longtime collectors, the physical assets really matter to them. I hate the physical assets. All they are is a giant like waste of space that makes my wife mad, that I are hard to manage that I don't know how to store, that I constantly lose count of, like they don't hold the value for me. That's not how I was treating them. I was treating them as an alternative investment class and I wanted them to be acting like my stock portfolio, not a physical thing that I had to manage. And that that was a view shared by a lot of us that were entering in new to it is that we weren't romantic about the physical object. And so we really wanted to figure out who was gonna make it digital. So we got to know a little bit of like the wax crew at wax.io and what they were doing with some like purely digital assets and things like that. And we we're like, Oh, okay. That feels like, I don't know that like that's coming, but it feels like a bridge too far for now. And that's when we met uh, Evan and the team at dibs. And this was the first time the light bulb really went off for us. And so what dibs does is they take custodian of the physical assets and then they create an NFT of it that you can trade in real time. Um, and so it's a 24 seven real time market that tokenizes and fractionalizes cards. And it was like, that's it. 
that was the thing that when we saw it, we're like, that solves all of our problems in the way that it's instant access to liquidity. It removes all the friction to purchase. You can get into the best assets. Because the other thing we really noticed is that there was a big bifurcation in the market between the truly premium assets and then all the other crap. And so it was like, we wanted to be in the LeBron asset class, not in the like speculative lower tier player asset class but they were price prohibitive, right? And so fractionalization was another big piece that we believed a lot in and we saw what Rally was doing and the way that that was exciting people and giving them access to alternative assets, high, like premium alt assets. And so the combination of those things was really like, oh, okay, this is the thing. And so we ended up making a $250,000 investment. We created an SPV out of our poker group and invested into dips. And so this was actually one of the first moments that you and I first met. I remember playing in this poker game. Yeah. I remember thinking that you were trying to pick on the new guy and I was betting big into you. And I think you took like a hundred bucks from me with like pocket aces, literally. And yeah. you're like, dude, why are you going so hard? I was like, I thought you were trying to shove me out. And you're like, I wouldn't do that to the new guy. But so he's pitching dibs. I remember sitting there. Were you there I, that night? I was there. You I was there in the, that pitch. The dibs night? Oh, yes. no way. That's awesome. So, so I was sitting there and you guys were even kind of asking me some questions like, hey, you're, you said you're newer to this space, not that into it. What do you think? And I was like, do you really think there's going to be enough volume to be able to trade this stuff? Like, no way, 24-7. And I even think that was maybe before the crypto element. Um, yeah. Like Evan had crypto experience, but it was like, what does that look like there? And so, one, I, this is going to be a miss of my lifetime, not yeah. being like, yeah. hey, Taylor, can I please invest 10K into this round yeah. with you guys? Like that, you know, yeah. this whole time it I'm is. kicking myself. <laughs> it's but, funny because there's two guys, just a quick side story, that didn't invest with us. So there's like 11 people to play and two of them did it. And so we just, we harass them endlessly that they're going to write the intro to our book, that our boat is going to be named Not Jeff. Like we just harass them constantly. So, Dang it. So you're not the only one. You're not Dude. The only one. Yeah. I mean, and so, but here we are now, Dibs is launching. It's amazing. And I know it's yeah. getting a ton of traction. So yeah. we'd love to even hear like, what was that experience of being like, oh, wow, hey, we could totally tokenize these cards. Don't go through the whole LLC process. How involved were you with that to like even yeah. helping them get to where they're at now? Yeah, so that was a lot of the conversation was like, okay, if you think about why Rally's done what they've done, it's, it's a securities issue, right? And so there's this whole question around how these assets are going to be viewed from a regulatory stance. And so this is one of the fascinating things about what NFTs represent, is that the reason that Evan and the legal team that they've worked with feel really confident is that one of the primary value propositions of uh, an NFT is your ability to take it and transact with it in multiple marketplaces. And so this, that attribute of it is really important. Um, that has to do with why this is suddenly, um, in their stance, offset some of the liability around the security is that there's, there's multiple opportunities for marketplaces of transaction. Because uh, whatever the blockchain is that you're built on, you know, just like if you follow the NFT craze, you can, you can take a piece of art and you can transact on OpenSea, or you could go to Nifty Gateway, or you could go to Rarible, or you could go to, you know, and the, the same thing is gonna be true you know, with Topshot, which is built on Flow, so it can't transact into some places. But right now, if you have a Flow compatible wallet, you could take your NFT off of Topshot. You can hold, you can self custodian it, and uh, there's going to be more Flow based marketplaces and things like that. So that's a really, that was a really interesting light bulb moment of like, oh, that really makes it a different thing than being locked in this single source ecosystem that makes it so that you can't, you can only transact through them in a way that makes it uh, potentially more of a liability. So that was like a big piece of it. But it's funny because at the time when Evan pitched us, the phrase NFT never actually came up. We One of the things we kick ourselves about is that this was like back in October. Had he started talking to us about NFTs, 
like we would have done more research into the co competitors in that exact format, which would have gotten us into freaking top shot three months earlier. Wow. And we would have made so much more money. And so like we missed connecting that dot in a way that uh, we saw that like the tokenization and the fractionalization is, is like, okay, we see how this is going to come to life. But we just kept thinking about it as like Robin Hood. You know, like that was like the, the only process that we sort of kept thinking about. I was like, oh, this is like, you're going to be able to retail trade these assets that are stored in, you know, custodians somewhere else. But, um, but yeah, so that, that was like the first foray into it. And now, you know, dibs launched whatever it's been about 30 days. And, you know, we were hopeful of the, the demand that they would create. And obviously top shot has created this sort of tidal wave where it's normalized. I think this in a completely different way that I, certainly accounts for some of what's happening with dibs right now. But the reality is, is that like, when you interact in divs and you get on and you deposit and realize that you can buy with $5 a Topps Chrome LeBron James PSA 10 instantly, and then you have instant access to liquidity at any moment, you just realize that it's like, it's a better financial mechanism than a physical piece of cardboard that you mail and ship and sell with a 10% 10, 10 transaction fee on eBay. Like it's been just gangbusters. It's been wild. And you know, the biggest thing is just getting everybody in and figuring out how to KYC everybody and manage the, the load because it's happening so fast. Yeah. And need to have Evan on here just to be able to talk more through. You do, uh, you do for whole. sure. But even talking about like the strategy of, so it's nice is you can basically go and you search by player rather than being like, right. oh, I got the this refractor versus this parallel, totally. blah, blah, blah. You can just go and invest in a player. What is the thinking behind that? So when we thought about this, this went back to the education thing, right? It was this idea that trying to understand, like, let's say you wanted a Luca card. A new person doesn't know the difference between select and prism. And they certainly don't know the difference between prism base versus silver versus blue, but like they definitely don't know all the parallels. And then they can't distinguish between an SGC 10 and a PSA 10 and a BGS 95. And like all, like they can't possibly, what they know they want is they believe in Luca and they believe in the future of who he will become in the NBA. And so to give people access to the assets on the basis of the thing that they already understand is really, really powerful, right? And so what it does is it just takes all the underlying cards that exist and basically takes your investment and breaks them up across the entire portfolio of Lucas. So now you are, your entry point into buying trading cards can be simply the player. And if you think about this, there's a thousand ways they could do this. It could be maybe you're interested in the 2020 NBA rookie class, right? And you think it's a disproportionately good class. And so rather than trying to buy just Anthony Edwards or LaMelo Ball or, you know, Tyrese Maxey or, who, or Tyrese Halliburton or, you know, whoever else, you could do the, you know, 2020 NBA Eastern Conference All-Stars. And I want to put a bet on that class of people. Like you could do, you know, like there's just a thousand ways that you could sort this. European basketball players, like whatever you think is going to be the next horizon of attention or interest or growth, like what Dibs allows is going to be able to do is to sort of organize those at lots of cool and different access points than anybody else. So it's kind of like specific indexes, like you said, like the all-star index or whatever. That's right. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. And they don't work exactly the same way as an index. And so I specific, I'm intentionally not using that term, right. even though it's the one that people <laughs> understand, but from a financial standpoint, they don't function the same way. They just take every asset and take your hundred dollars and divide them up amongst the 10 assets. So that's not exactly how an index works, but the premise, the idea of what you're saying, which is a basket of assets sort of diversified versus a singular individual card is the general underlying idea. So I'm looking at my dibs account right now. Um, I think you and I might've both got into this one when I saw on Twitter, 2019 National Treasure Zion RPA yep. out of 75. And yeah, bought in, it was worth 1200 and now that's worth 1400 just about. And so it's really interesting to, to follow dibs. I notice almost every time there's a new big drop of cards, 
Yes. It, maybe it's because it's so new that card is is taking a dip in value because I think people are like, ooh, well, I want in on this one. But then it kind of readjusts. What what are you seeing? So yeah, the pricing is really important. This is a really important conversation, right? Because for everybody who comes from the hobby, like the benchmark idea of value in their mind is eBay. Okay. This is where price is anchored to in our minds. But what I believe is like that's actually a really poor assessment of value of these assets. And what I mean by that is that these assets in an environment with all that friction, with all those fees, have a value. But those these assets now with increased supply or demand side action, because now a f- there's fractional demand, so somebody can get in at $5 or $10 versus only people who can buy at $30,000, in an environment that's instantly liquid at 2.9% fee, not 10% fee, is very, very different. And so what I believe is going to happen is that you're actually going to see the market start to move the other direction, which is that the anchoring of what price or value is going to be is going to happen way more in fractional environments and eBay is going to be sort of a reduction relative to that cost because of how labor intensive it is to create liquidity in those environments. But in the short term, what you have is also an environment that where there's a dynamic where the way any like marketplace for assets works, right, is there, there's a buy side and a sell side. And because there's a limited number of users, there's gaps along the price spectrum of buy and sell orders. Right, so you have a lot more volatility in swings relative to where the buy and sell orders are. What you're going to see is as more users come onto the platform, there's going to be less volatility as there's more buy and sell orders along the price spectrum. But I still believe that you're going to see the assets inside of Dibs be higher value than you'll see inside of um, on eBay. And, and a perfect example of this is like if you watch, you know, tomorrow. There's a whole new set of drops, but the drops sell out instantaneously. And it's because it's fractional that you are, are you're going from one user at a really expensive price to, you know, nobody's allowed to buy more than 5%. And you have a whole bunch of people transacting at 5 to 50 to $100. You can sell, the assets become worth more money. Like there's more demand for them. And, and I think that's going to continue. And that's one of the thesis that we believe is that the reason sellers, the reason Dibs is going to gobble up all the supply side is because, again, there's no fee. And you're going to be able to command a, a premium on the basis of the fractional. And so if that's the case, Dibs becomes the best place in the world to sell your cards. And if the best cards in the world are on the platform, then all the, 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 the buyers are going to want to be there too. Yeah. So in short, because there's so much demand to be able to buy these cards at a cheaper price where I can't go and buy a $100,000 card, but I can buy this, that, that's right. that demand is going to jack up those prices. And, that, and because that's a lot of questions around Dibs. They're like, how is this 2x the price of eBay? And it's just right. because it's getting a premium while it's being fractionalized. Yep. Um, and, and, and again, this idea of access to liquidity, like, like this is really important. So I'm holding up a PSA 10 slab. This is about a $250 card. If I want to get $250, there is no way for me to do this faster than at most I could maybe get a seller inside of a Facebook group that would transfer me money within the next 24 hours. And that would be the absolute fastest way I could get this into cash. And we all know that life happens. I need access to liquidity in my, my assets. That's a value proposition of an asset. So, the, But on dibs, if I own $250 worth of this card, I can get liquid with it immediately. And that's a, that's a, that makes it a better financial tool. And so in that sense too, it's really going to matter. And people will pay a premium for access to that liquidity. Do you sell any cards uh, with dibs? Yeah, I do. So, so that's one of the the benefits that I have as as an early investor is that we're also part of the supply side of the early days of the platform. If you go on there right now, if you own, you know, the Mike Trout uh, rookie card that's on there, or the Luka Doncic silver prism, like that's my card. Um, and in the, in the next week, I have some huge cards dropping. I have a I have a Mike Trout Bowman Chrome Superfractor Auto 
that's going to drop. So yeah, as the seller, like there's not a better place for me to sell assets than on there. And because of we, we have the relationship, we get to participate in that. What do you think that Mike Trout one's going to open up at? I'm going to keep that secret, but let's, <laughs> I, my, my hope is, my hope is to set the record. I'll say that. My hope is to set the record. Okay. So obviously dibs and, and that is a future that you believe in. Now you also have some yeah. hot takes on obviously like the NFT space as a whole. You and I have talked about yeah. the metaverse. I think in your Twitter profile right now, jokingly, you have like metaverse researcher or something like that. The metaverse prepper, oh. the metaverse prepper. Yeah. <laughs> what are you imagining? Like, where is this going um, when you're looking into the future? So that's a big question. So I, I think it, NBA Top Shot is sort of the per, perfect example of like a step even beyond dibs, which is this idea of purely digital assets. And you just realize that like a video file as a store of value is better than cardboard printed with a picture printed on it. It's just better. It's cooler. It, it offers you more uh, different formats and mediums and ability to do rad things. Um, you can create the same premise of scarcity. The marketplace is easier to instantly access in and out of. And so I, I just think that what you're seeing is this format of a NFTs providing provenance, which is the ability to determine ownership with a serial number assigned to it. So you can sort of find origination, right? Which is proving to be a real value in, in Top Shot, where you're seeing the earlier identified assets, like number one is worth more than number 100 of an asset is a real value proposition. And then you take this idea where in the collectibles, it's already makes sense to us that everything is an asset, right? Like that a card is an asset that I can transact and trade in. And then what you realize is that that ideology is going to be applied to basically every object. And there's a great blog post that I referenced in this in my uh, my write-up on NFTs on uh, uh, Notion. Is there's an article written called "The Internet Is Up for Sale," and it's this idea that um, we'll link it in the uh, part, we'll link it in the show notes right here. Yeah, it's this idea that every part of the internet is going to become an asset. Um, and a part of that's because there's been this historical exchange that creators have made where if I'm a Facebook user or a YouTube user or a Twitter user, there's an exchange that I made. And that exchange says when I create a piece of content, whether that's a video or an image or a cleverly written tweet, I give ownership of that asset to the platform in exchange for their rights to do whatever they want to monetize it. And what I get in return is I get distribution, I get access to audience, and I get monetization. So if I'm a YouTube creator, I give you the rights to my, my creation, you give me audience and money. Well, what's happened is people don't need audience access anymore like they used to. They've built their own audiences. And so many of these creators, the value exchange doesn't make sense anymore. To give you my creation and ownership of my creation in exchange for your audience. What if I have my own audience? Do I need to do that? And so the missing piece was monetization. It was like, yeah, but YouTube's ad, rev ad revenue, blah, blah, blah. But now what NNST represents is that if that asset, if my creation is monetizable, and you saw the bridge to this, right? You see it in the form of Patreon. You see it in the form of OnlyFans. You see it in the form where there's these creators that were bridging the way to saying, wait a second, this exchange feels broken for me in some way. And now I think NFTs are just a, a step further, which is this idea that everything is sort of an asset that can be monetized and all of my creations are worthy of valuation in some capacity. Um, and then you see the, all the ways that this plays out on secondary layers, which are sort of this idea that like, okay, Beeple is this incredible creator who makes an NFT. And then there are collections of Beeple owners who create social tokens on top of those assets. They create community value and connection 
on which they like so again almost indexing a collection of data sets and then creating community and value on top of it on the basis of that um and then there's this whole idea of like access as an asset one of my favorite examples is like the ferocious and reflect sneaker drop okay so if you think about like kickstarter was this premise where i was going to buy early access to a product right and so i was going to give you money pre-production and what I got in exchange for that money was an email confirming that it someday you would ship me my object, okay? But if you look at the ferocious reflect shoe drop, what happened was there was three tiers of shoes, small, medium, or like premium, super premium, and super rare, or like whatever. You can imagine three different price tiers. And because what NFTs also contain is this ability to create this smart contract, right? Each asset also included different things like a call from the artist and you know all these different little cool access things that you would like if you were a big fan of Fuocious, right? A print of his art, whatever, that are also assigned to the token. And then what happens is after the transaction happens, they said, okay, whoever holds the token eight weeks from now, we'll ship it to them. But in the meantime, what you hold is an asset that you could trade on a secondary market. So now that pre-order becomes an asset that I own as the buyer that I could choose to sell and make money on if I wanted. So again, it goes from being an email confirmation that entitles me to something at some point to an actual asset with ownership that I can transact in. As the buyer, it's way better to buy assets than objects, right? So the same thing is true of like, think about digital goods inside of Fortnite, right? Everybody's buying skins, they're buying you know characters, but those aren't assets that I can't take anywhere. It's an object that I own, but I can't take it off the platform. I can't sell it to anybody else. It's a one-to-one -one relationship. It's an object, not an asset. The second that becomes an NFT, it becomes an asset. It's way better for me to be able to transact with it as an asset and holds more value for me as the buyer if I could then transact with it again on a secondary market. Right. And because right. you're saying built into the system, there's like a wallet that you could then go and I could say, hey, Taylor, I'm going to sell you my Fortnite skin that you can use in your platform. And it's all kind of tracked sort of outside of Fortnite because it's That's an right. asset, not just an object within the game itself. Right. If it's built on any one of the blockchains, the beautiful thing about blockchains is they're all open and transparent. So you can see like right now you can go look at every asset that I own in my Top Shot account. And this is going to become part of the social flex. This is going to be how we sort of identify, you know, like the way that we would show off all our Fortnite skins is like, no, 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 your digital wallet and everything that exists is going to be sort of publicly viewable in all the ways that you can show off all your digital collectibles, all your cool art, all these different things. Like the fact that I own the first children's book ever published as an NFT, that's cool. That's a statement about me and who I am that gives me an ability to sort of express my identity as a father who also is digitally savvy, right? Like that's what that is. It's a, that's why I bought it, right? Um, and now that the fact that it's also an asset that I can transact with in multiple marketplaces just adds to the value of it. So I love like the idea, you know, the Fortnite skins when we talk about NFTs. I think a lot of times people are like, well, what do you mean? I can collect it and it's online. But I think as a lot of these items start having utility, right? If a music artist creates something and I yes. can listen to the song right. and I own it, I think, you know, a whole other conversation, but I think Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh have the best opportunity. That's right. Don't at me at, in NFTs because give me a one of one rare Pokemon. I, I'm not even, I don't really like Pokemon, but if you give me this where it's a one of one and I could own this thing, this legendary Pokemon, and I can use that in a battle or something against someone else, all of a sudden that makes us a really cool collectible that has real life utility that's fun, right? And so right. that kind of mentality, I think utility is very, is an important next step. And so what you're describing right now, this idea of digital utility, this is a hard idea for people to wrap their minds around. But I want you to think about all the environments in which you 
interact in digitally, whether that's Twitter to Instagram, to every online game you play, to the social communities that you interact with. Peloton. And I want you, yeah, Peloton. Now I want you to imagine that the things that you own affect those environments in a positive way for you. I saw, I saw a report the other day that users with CryptoPunks as their Twitter profile have seen an increase in engagement on Twitter of 30%. That is digital utility. If I have this image, my Twitter account gets more engagement. Do you know how valuable that would be to me as a creator, right? Like that's digital utility. That, and it's really important that we understand that the environments that we're going to live in digitally, the fact that we could affect them positively is going to be really important to us. And so whether that's the way we look, that says something about us in Decentraland, or that we could on our Peloton screens where we could show off some cool headband, whatever it is that allows me to make some statement about myself in the digital environments that I live in, the people who understand that and create objects that create value for people and utility for people are going to win big. Right now, the one that everybody's talking about that is creating value just for the sense of being a collector uh, when it comes to NBA Top Shot. Yep. You're, you're pretty heavy into NBA Top Shot. I am, yep. Market is getting destroyed today. So tough day for NBA Top Shot, but yes, I am. <laughs> Would love some takes on kind of where you think this is going. Top Shot in particular? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think it's an absolute monster. Like what I, what I think people don't understand about the scale of these things is that like Top Shot is already the fastest growing marketplace in human history, okay? And, and like in the last 30 days, they've done like $350 million in transactions. Like the scale of what is possible when you talk about digital goods and the rate of growth potential, and yet still most of the world has no idea what this is, right? Like I just think it's hard for people to comprehend the scale of what we're talking about in terms of what these things are going to become. Like think about how much meat is left on the NBA highlight bone. There hasn't been one Michael Jordan released. We have gone back to none of Kobe's all-time legendary moments. There's no 81-point game moments yet. Like think about the asset, and this is why IP is, is so important to understand about this conversation, is that if you talk about starting to offer up some of the greatest moments in human history, the way I talk about NFT sometimes is this idea that they are the most efficient store of cultural energy, right? It's this idea that what's amazing about being able to pull up and watch back Kobe Bryant's 81-point game, every time I watch that game, it brings me back to where I was with me and my brother sitting in their, our room, cheering like we'd never cheered for anything before in sports. And every shot was like this rush of adrenaline. And when I watch the highlights, I feel that. I feel connected to my brother in that moment. That's the same thing with physical cards in a way. Like we do this with photographs. Like on my desk are photographs of my children. It's the same thing. It's a store of a moment that gives me meaning and value. And Top Shot does this so incredibly well and has so far to go with the IP that they're using to do it. Like imagine, can you name a single other product in the last five years that had 300,000 people in line for a drop of 20,000 objects? And people are still like, oh, I don't know about Top Shot. No, no, I don't know about Top Shot is over. Like that argument is done. There's nothing left to be talked about. They did it. They built a thing that has more demand than almost any consumer product in the world right now. And, yeah, but and is, like, that, is that genuine demand though? Or is that just hype cycle? People trying to make quick buck? Does it matter? Who cares? Like, what is, what is the word genuine demand even mean? Like, what, yeah, like, that's the what key. is genuine? What is genuine demand, right? What I'll tell you is it's a lot less bullshit than spending 60% of your revenue on Facebook ads because you know what they're spending on Facebook ads? Zero dollars. So it, it, it's organic demand. Is there anything more genuine than organic demand that you didn't have to pay to show up in front of somebody and get them to show up to your website? And this is this, one of the things I tell people about dibs, about Top Shot, and why I'm like, you guys, don't, you have no idea. It's because I'm a growth marketer. I know the tactics 
And here's the candid thing, like they suck. They, they've done nothing. They've done nothing from a tactical paid acquisition. The second they start doing any of that, they have so far to go. Imagine meeting a brand, like a consumer, like an apparel company. And they're like, yeah, we have 300,000 transactions a month and we've spent $0 on paid media. And then sitting around <laughs> and going like, well, I don't, I don't know if there's meat left on this phone. Like, right. it's, ins it's literally insane. People have no idea how much tactically they still have in front of them to drive in like incredible amounts of demand. So if I think for a lot of the Alton Insights community, there are a lot of people who have been transacting on collectible, rally, maybe they have physical assets themselves. If they're hopping into NBA Top Shot for the first time, where would you point them? What should they start doing, researching? So this is, it's, this is the same thing when I talked about earlier, this idea of the bifurcation of assets. Because one of the things people are saying is like, there's going to be infinite supply. And so Top Shot's going to be worthless. And it's like, that is true. 98% of the Top Shots are going to be like dollars. But the same thing with baseball cards. Most baseball cards are absolutely worthless. Like literally junk drawer piles of trash is what most baseball cards are. Like 99% of baseball cards, right? So the key is, just like in these assets, get into originals. Scarcity matters. You want series one. You want the moments that are going to be there first and badges that are rookies. And you want the premium assets. You want LeBron, you want Steph, you want Luca. You want the players who like, there's risk associated with how developed the legacy already is. There's nothing LeBron James can do to make himself not in the conversation for one of the greatest ever. It doesn't matter if he never takes another shot in basketball again, right? Steph is probably the second on the legacy chart. Luca, he's been really great. Everyone believes he's gonna be awesome, but he could tear his ACL and be done tomorrow. So there's more, the risk just goes, increases the more volatile the assets become. Now, part of this is your time horizon of investment, just like any investment thesis. If you're trying to flip a card in the next 24 hours, well, maybe you go try and take a run on some Anthony Edwards because LaMelo Ball just went out and like, you have to play the game relative to the horizon that you want to make the money on. But the safest thing is to go to the original assets that are premium of the best players. And those assets are going to hold their value for a really long time. But what I'll say too, though, is that like, this goes back to the problem right now and where Top Shot has another level of growth is they haven't fractionalized anything yet. Because it goes back to the same problem. Okay, great, Taylor. You told me to go buy Series 1 LeBron. The cheapest asset is $30,000. What am I supposed to do? Well, you're right. That sucks. There's a very small group of people who can go spend $30,000 on a top shot right now. But the second it's fractional and you could spend five, well, which asset are you going to buy? And what's that going to do to the demand? So there's so many levers left that people just like, yes, is there hype and hysteria right now? Absolutely. But does that downplay the underlying value of this asset? Only if you don't understand it. Only if you don't understand it. Yeah, and such a good point when it comes to the cards. When I open a box of Optic Football, for example, that's a product I've been in love with. I, I open that up. I stick all, most of the commons to the side, and I keep, yep. out of 40 cards, I keep eight, maybe. Right, and, and, like, really, and really, you're only looking for Justin Herbert you know, parallels. Like, right, like really right. there's like I'm one... sad if I don't get that. Yeah. Right. And, and cause they call it a case hit, right? It's like, there's literally one card in this case that is the primary asset that everybody wants. And yet we are like sitting here just throwing away bunches of cards and then turn around and go like, yeah, but the top shot supply. And you're like, <laughs> Oh my God, what are you guys, what are we talking about? <laughs> I've never thought about it like that. That, uh, that, that really did just flip the switch for me. So lastly here, What's something that you're looking into? Maybe it's an NFT project no one's heard about. Maybe it's a physical alternative asset. If you would let us in on this secret, what what are you looking into right now? Oh, that's such a good question. Uh, so my world is e-commerce, right? So I'm trying to understand specifically brands selling physical products, 
how do they access this world? Like, what is the entry point into the conversation? Um, and so that's that's one of the things I'm really working hard to try and answer for my clients because they they see me talking about all of this and they're like, okay, so what do we do, Taylor? What are you going to do about this? And so I think that there's uh, there's a few things that I think are really important for brands brands to consider. One is if your product gives people the expression of identity, so things that fall into that category, apparel, jewelry, watches, anything that's an expression of identity that's not a pure utility. Things that are utilities, if you're selling vacuums, like you're not in a rush to get to the metaverse, right? Like that's that's a little bit less important. But if you have an expression of identity, you need to figure out how to give people that expression in spaces that are digital. And I would really recommend a great place to start that I think will give you a sense of this is go go read Nike's patent on CryptoKicks, okay? What it will do for you is it will spark for you an understanding of this idea, okay? And it'll give you a sense of their the way they're thinking about it. One of So I'll give you one little cool attribute about Nike's CryptoKicks that I think is like a perfect example of the cycle of digital to physical that we're headed towards, okay? So CryptoKicks um, is Nike's patent for NFT-based uh, sneakers. And the idea is that for super rare sneakers, there would be an accompanying NFT associated with them, right? That proves ownership of that physical sneaker, but also creates a digital asset. One of the capabilities though, is similar to CryptoKitties, if anybody knows that, is that you can combine multiple CryptoKicks to breed, to produce, never before seen or created rare sneakers and then have them made physically okay wow. so imagine the creativity of somebody wow. to get get two different digital nfts okay a rare lebron and a you know mbappe like think about the collabs that nike does all the time and now imagine an entire marketplace of incredibly creative people coming up ways to combine them to create not only new nfts but then the right to have nike make those sneakers for you what that unlocks in terms of possibilities for them and for people's engagement and the value of, oh, I need that because I, I love the tongue on that one. And I want to, you know, like in terms of what the assets allow you to create, to produce, and you start talking about a completely different thing. Like you start talking about a massively underappreciated opportunity to combine these digital assets to produce new physical things in ways that will make incredible new stuff. And so that is an example that I think what I would do if I was a brand is I would just go absorb all the ways in which people with physical products are interacting digitally. Another another huge one is just going to be access. Like Gary Vee's creating NFTs that entitle you into access to every one of his keynote speeches for life if right. you hold it, right? So what could your brand give someone an asset to that's access? If you think about the Costco model, right? All a Costco membership is, is access to unique pricing. It's an example. But the thing is, like, unlike a country club membership, I can't sell my Costco membership yet, right? It's not an asset that I could actually transact with yet, right? But think about all the ways in which access is going to be combined into an asset that brands can sell, whether that's, you know, unique sales, early releases of product drops exclusive and so this idea of a whole layer of a digital good called access every brand is going to have to think about that as a way to bring money forward it's a new product development cycles like there's so many things so i didn't give you one there but i gave you some directions to go explore for the lawyers in the back a quick disclaimer 
You understand that by listening to this podcast, you are not receiving financial advice. No content published here constitutes a recommendation that any particular security, transaction, or investment strategy is suitable for any specific person. You alone are solely responsible for determining whether an investment, security, or strategy, or any other product or service is appropriate or suitable for you based on your investment, objectives, and personal financial situation. Please speak with a financial advisor to understand if the risks inherent in trading are appropriate for you. Trade at your own risk. Bum, bum, bum.